The teaching uh, for tonight is titled, Who is Adequate for These Things? Who is Adequate for These Things? And this has been a statement that's been ringing in my ears for the last couple days as I've been putting together this message. And I looked up an article titled, WorldPopulationReview.com. Gave me a couple statistics in this article, and it states, 166,279 people die every day. It's a pretty big number, right? 166,000 people. Simi Valley has a population of 125,000. So that's more than the population of Simi Valley every day. That's how many people die. That's 6,928 deaths per hour, 115 deaths per minute, and about two deaths every second around the world. Pretty crazy. People are either going from life to life or they're going from death to death. The scripture says in Hebrews 9:27, just as it is appointed for a man to die once, after that comes the judgment. And we're called in Jude 1:23 to snatch people out of the fire. Joe's mentioned that several times. He says we're all firefighters, right? We're all firefighters for Christ snatching people out of the fire. It can be taxing work. It can be a struggle. It can be painful at times. Some of you have friends, family members. You know people maybe at work that aren't trusting in Christ. And maybe you've prayed with them. Maybe you've prayed for them. Maybe you've had conversations with them about the Lord and they still haven't turned to him. Maybe it's been a couple months. Maybe it's been years to where you're laboring for them and prayers and, and conversations. They still don't turn to the Lord. And it can be hard, right? It can be weighty on us, and we're all part of the ministry, right? We're all to do the work of an evangelist. We're all to share the gospel. We're all ministers of reconciliation, and we're all called to be in the fight. We're all in a battle, and in this battle, the bolts are flying, the missiles are dropping, the shrapnel is flying all around us. We can get wounded at times. We can be hurting at times. We can be struggling at times. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. He said we despaired even of life. The burden was so heavy upon us, ministering from city to city. People aren't coming to the Lord. Some people are, and that brings joy. But with that, there was persecution. With that, he says, there was nakedness and peril and the sword at times. He says in the book of Acts that he was stoned to death and left for dead. Praise God, God raised him up and he went right into the next town preaching the gospel. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 136. He says, my eyes shed streams of tears because your law is not obeyed. Isaiah says in Isaiah 22, 4, Turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of the daughter of my people. And Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 8.21, For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am crushed. I mourn. Horror has gripped me. When you, when you read throughout the scriptures, the prophets and the apostles, even Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who slays those who come to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen does her chicks, but you were unwilling. That should be our hearts, right? 
we should be weeping over this world, over the people that are not repenting and turning to Christ. It should break our hearts. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, if you will. I want to look at about 10 verses or so, 9 or 10 verses, starting in 2 Corinthians 15, and we're just going to walk through these verses one by one. I'll spend a little bit more time on some of the verses than others, and then we'll let you out so you can fellowship and go get some rest. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Paul says we're a fragrance. The Greek word is euodia. It's a sweet smell. If you remember from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 2, there's this woman named Euodia in Philippians 4.2, and he says, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony with one another. So this lady's name actually means sweet smell, sweet aroma. Ephesians 5.2 says, Walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Euodia, same Greek word. Christ's sacrifice to God was a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God. We also see this in Genesis 8.1, Exodus 29.18, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9, 13, and 17, where it says that the sacrifices were a sweet aroma to the Lord. And so Paul's saying here, when we minister, when we preach the gospel, when we serve the Lord, we're a fragrant aroma of Christ to God, to those who are being saved, and to those who are perishing. He says, for we. Who's the we here? Well, it says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy wrote this letter, but I think he's talking about Titus, maybe, Apollo, Silas, Luke, those who worked alongside him in the ministry, but also us as well, right? We are a fragrance of Christ. When, you, when you're living for the Lord, you're like a sweet smell in the Lord's nostrils when you're living for him. But in the world's nostrils, not so much, as we'll see here in just a moment. There's a man named Theodoret. Kind of sounds like deodorant, but that's how. <laughs> Theodoret, he's an early church father. He had a quote that really stuck out to me when he was speaking about verse 15. He says, we indeed bear the sweet odor of Christ's gospel to all. But all who participate in it do not experience its salutiferous, which means favorable, effects. Thus to diseased eyes, even the light of heaven is noxious, yet the sun does not bring the injury. And to those with a fever, honey is bitter, yet it is sweet nevertheless. Vultures too, it is said, fly away from sweet odors of myrrh. Yet myrrh is myrrh, though the vultures avoid it. Thus, if some be saved, though others perish, the gospel retains its own virtue. And we preachers of it remain just as we are. The gospel retains its odorous and salutiferous properties, though some may disbelieve and abuse it and perish. He's saying the gospel and the feet of those who proclaim the gospel are beautiful. They're not tainted by the disbelief and the abuse of the world. That's something that we need to remember, right? 
even though the world scorns us, even though they shame us, even though they abuse the gospel, even though they laugh at maybe the way we live or the way we teach or the way we counsel or encourage or the way we raise up our children, nevertheless, the gospel that we proclaim is still beautiful and our lives are beautiful to the Lord. We need to hold fast to that. Verse 16, Paul says, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life, and who is adequate for these things. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. Many commentators believe that Paul here in verse 16 is referring to the Roman triumphal procession. This was a public event that the Romans held to celebrate their successes in battle. And the commander would be, running, would be riding on that front chariot. They would be parading, marching through the city. They would be beating the drum. And they would have incense bearers who would swing censers of sweet-smelling fragrance into the air as they marched into the city, proclaiming victory. And many commentators believe that is what Paul is referencing here in verse 16. An aroma of death to death, another an aroma to life to life. So why does he mention death here? How does that relate to the Roman triumphal procession? Well, behind the procession are the poor slaves taken captive, doomed to die, and to them the sweet fragrance is the stench of death and defeat. So here they are led behind the Roman procession. They're being led to the slaughter. They're being led to death. And even though the sweet smell is going throughout the air to them, it is a stench. And so Paul's saying, some are living apart from the gospel now. They're dead right now, and they're going to die, and they're going to be separated from Christ forever, death to death. Some of us are trusting in Christ now, and we're alive in Christ. And when we die, we'll live with him forever. Life to life, death to death. Jude even says, doubly dead. So, who is adequate for these things? One last point regarding the first part of verse 16. In John chapter 12, if you guys remember the story, Mary poured costly perfume on Jesus. It said the whole house was filled with the fragrance of this aroma. That's John 12, verse 2. It was pleasing to Jesus, right? He was pleased with this sacrifice, this offering. But Judas complained, if you remember. He's like, why didn't she sell this perfume and Give the money to the poor. To him, it was a stench. To everyone else, it was a sweet aroma. So at the end of verse 16, who is adequate for these things? Who's sufficient? The Greek word is hikanos. It means worthy, suitable, enough, sufficient in ability. It's a rhetorical question. Paul's saying, who is sufficient for these things? as people over and over and over were rejecting the gospel that he was preaching. They were abusing him, persecuting him, throwing him in prison. And he's in agony. He says in Romans 9 that he's willing to be a curse from Christ so that his fellow countrymen would come to faith in Jesus. He's pleading with people every day and many of them are rejecting the gospel. And it's weighty on his soul. It's heavy on his heart. And he's saying, who is adequate? Who's sufficient for this ministry? Who's sufficient for this painful task? If if he did the ministry in his own strength, he would crumble 
at such a weighty task. So if Paul is saying who is adequate for these things, if he wasn't adequate, then who is, right? Jeremiah, what does he say about being adequate? Jeremiah 1.6, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. That's after the Lord commissioned him and told him, I'm going to send you to the nations. He says, I don't know how to speak. Moses, Exodus 3.11, Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses, again, in Exodus 4.10, says, I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Do you remember Gideon? Judges 6.15, Gideon said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And then Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15.9 says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. They understood that they were not adequate, right? They understood that in and of themselves they were weak, they were frail, they, they couldn't do the task at hand in their own strength. But God used all of these men. He used Paul, he used Jeremiah, he used Moses, he used Gideon. He uses men and women who are weak, who are weak in and of themselves, but who are willing. People who are faithful. And all these men were faithful and God used them mightily. The question for us tonight is, are we faithful? Look at verse 17. Paul goes on to say, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. What does that word peddling mean? Maybe your translation says corrupting. We are not like many, corrupting. It's actually translated as a huckster, someone who markets for the ministry, for financial gain, adulterating the word of God for the sake of gain. Paul's saying we're not like those false teachers who are coming into these churches, the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, and these other churches to get people to follow after them, to make money. He says we're just here to be a mouthpiece for God. We want to be here as if Christ himself is here and preaching the good news. We're not going to change it. We're not going to alter it. We're just going to say it how it is. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, he knew more than that. He's using a figure of speech. I've determined to know nothing than that. Read through all his epistles and all this amazing theology. Yet that was the focal point. That was at the center of Paul's message. And he wasn't going to divert from it. Even if people rejected the message, even if people wouldn't listen or persecuted him, nevertheless, he's going to preach the message of Christ. He was not going to be like those who corrupted the word of God. We see that a lot today in our culture, right? Just turn on the TV, right? Turn on TBN. I was watching YouTube the other day, Mike Winger. Some of you guys have heard of him. I think he's on the Good Fight radio network, and Mike Winger recently did a broadcast or a show on Joel Osteen, and he played the entire sermon of Joel Osteen. And point by point, he showed, oh, this is not biblical, what Joel Osteen's saying. Yeah, that's not quite what this text says. Yeah, this, he's off here, he's off here. And he went point by point through this message that Joel Osteen gave, and it got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views, as many of Mike Winger's videos do. He's got a pretty 
large following and pretty sound doctrinally. And so he's, he was uh, going through this, Joel Osteen's sermon, and guess what Joel Osteen and his church did? They filed a copyright infringement on Mike Winger's video and they made YouTube take it down. And they said, oh, you, you can't, that's, that's a copyright infringement. And at the end of the day, Mike Winger had to look into it and contacted lawyers and almost was willing to sue them so that he could get this back up because Mike Winger's like, no, I let you speak for yourself. And then I showed how you were corrupting the word of God, how you're peddling the word of God. Just like these teachers thousands of years ago, nothing has changed. So Mike Winger posted another video saying, you know what, I'm not gonna go ahead and file a lawsuit and here's my reasons why. And nevertheless, he called uh, Joel Osteen basically to repentance in the video and said, you know, you have a lot of errors in your teaching, nevertheless. And so I don't know if this video is gonna get taken down now for me mentioning that, but it's kind of a interesting day and age we live in. So Paul says we speak as from sincerity. The word means purity. We speak clearly. We speak the word of God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. So, chapter three, verse one. There's no breaks in the original letter. It says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need as some letters of condemnation to you or from you? Do we need letters of commendation to you or from you? Paul goes on to say, let's go ahead and read verse two. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by men. He's like, do we really need a letter? Some of these teachers in the first century, many of them who are false teachers peddling the word of God, needed these letters. They showed up to the churches with these letters and said, look, this is from my rabbi, or this is from my teacher, or this is from the school that I've been attending. See, we are legitimate. And they would pass out these letters, they would read them and then accept them, and hopefully they were able to go into these churches, get an audience, and then make money off of them. And Paul's saying, do you really think that I need a letter from somebody? Like, really? I, I was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to preach the gospel to you. Peter, James, and John, in Jerusalem, commission me in as well and the elders there. But he says, do I really need that letter? No, I don't. Verse two, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. He's like, do you want proof? Do you want proof that I'm an apostle? Look at your life. I brought the gospel to you and you got saved. And if you're saved, that's, that's proof in and of itself that I'm preaching the true gospel that Jesus sent me and so, he goes on to say in verse three, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Where he says in verse three, cared for by us. Cared for by us, I wanna look at that. But before that, I wanna ask us the question, tonight, what kind of letter are we? When others read you, when others see your life, when others hear you, what are they reading? What are they seeing? What do your kids see behind closed doors? Are you the same person that you are at church, that you are at work, that you are at home when no one's around? 
it's easy to let your hair down at home and none of us are perfect. There's only one perfect letter, right? The letters of the scripture. And by the way, that word letter there in verse one, letters of commendation and verse two where he says, you are our letter. That Greek word is epistole. It's where we get the English word epistle. He's saying you are an epistle. You are a letter. What are people reading when they see your life and my life? So in verse three, where Paul says cared for by us, the Greek word for cared is diakoneo. It's a slave who waits on guests, a servant, a table waiter. Paul's saying, I essentially wait on you guys. I serve you guys. You guys are just feasting. You're sitting back, relaxing, enjoying this rich meal that I'm bringing to you. I'm your servant. I'm caring for you guys. It says in Acts 18, 11, and 12 that Paul was with the Corinthian church for one year and six months, pouring his heart into them. So it wasn't like he did this evangelistic crusade, set up for a couple nights in Corinth, preached the gospel, some people got saved, and then he went on to the next town. No, he poured his life into them for a year and a half, day after day, teaching them the word of God, being patient with them, trying to get those to reconcile who were having divisions in the church and he poured his heart into them. And when you read through the book of 2 Corinthians and even 1 Corinthians a little bit, you see this over and over where Paul shares his heart to them. Let me go ahead and just rattle off some of these verses in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse six, Paul says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Chapter two, verse four, he says, for I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. You get to chapter six, verse 11. He says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. You get to chapter seven, verse three. He says, I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you so occupy our hearts that we live and die together with you. You get to chapter 11, verse 11. He says, why? Because I do not love you, God knows that I do, exclamation point in the NASB. It's not in the Greek, but he says, God knows I do. God knows I love you. Second Corinthians 12, 15. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I am to love you more, am I to be loved less? Where did Paul get this kind of love from? Where did he get this kind of servitude from? From the person who said in Matthew 20, 28, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. Diakoneo, same Greek word. To be a, a servant, a table waiter. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. When you're serving your brothers and sisters in the Lord, when you're serving people in the world, when you're putting others before yourself, you're doing what's right at the heart of the gospel. Read Philippians chapter two, where it talks about Jesus' incarnation, where it talks about not being selfish or having empty conceit, but with humility of mind, he regarded himself as a lowly bondservant, and he came into this world and he died this humiliating death on the cross, and Paul's saying, have this same attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
Have that attitude of servanthood. Have that attitude of humility. And it can be hard at times, especially when people aren't returning the love. Especially when people are pushing your buttons, they're testing you, they're laughing at you, you're sharing the gospel with them, maybe even online. Like my wife this week was going back and forth with this person about this post about an LGBTQ, whatever, picture, painting with um, a rainbow flag, and she just shared scripture, and then this guy came back with, yeah, but I read the Bible this way, and I read the Bible that way, and so you can read, you can read the Bible that way, and I'll read it this way. I'll basically have my white out, and I'll cut some pages out, and you could read the whole counsel of God. Now, he didn't say that, obviously, but that's what many do, right? They read the love of God and the love of Christ and look at how Jesus held the little children and look at how Jesus was loving the prostitute and look at how Jesus was loving the tax collector and a lot of this is true, but they're just giving you one side of the coin, right? They're just telling you one part of it. And so they're telling us, you just need to love. You just need to love. And what does that mean? Of course we need to love, right? But we need to preach the truth. And what I told my wife is if John the Baptist came in the room or Jesus or Paul or any of the apostles and started preaching the true gospel, started preaching the whole counsel of God's word, these people would run them out of town. These people would say, you're a, hate, you're a hater. You're a hate monger. You're not loving. You're not kind. You're homophobic, whatever they want to say when they're just preaching the truth. I've often used at my old job the example of a blind person, if they're walking towards a cliff and you see them, and they're walking closer and closer towards that cliff, what are you to do? You're just going to watch and go, well, I don't want to be mean. Well, what if you start yelling? Well, I don't want to be abrasive. I don't want to raise my voice too loud. That, that could be considered rude. Well, he's about to go towards the cliff and die. So you start yelling, he doesn't turn. So he's getting closer and closer to the cliff, and you go, well, if I go up to him and grab him, well, I don't know, then he, that's really abrasive. That's really, you know... Mm, I'm not going to do that. And so you go up to him and you go to grab him and he's fighting back. And let me go, let me go. And you're, 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 you tackle him and you, you're about to save him from going off the cliff and he punches you in the face and then he goes off the cliff. And it's like, what else can you do? And in one sense, that's a picture and an illustration of what some of us are trying to do with those in the world not physically speaking, but spiritually, we're pleading with them, we're praying with them, we're showing them the whole counsel of God's word, we're showing them all these scriptures, pleading with them to see, and yet they call us haters. They call us whatever they want, and God will give them according to their deeds. Nevertheless, we should have a tear in our eyes, we should have compassion in our hearts, and we should balance both of these things out. We should preach the truth and do it in love. So do we love the LGBTQ plus community? Yes, we do. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, such were some of you, right? And following. I mean, right before that, right at 9 and 10, he says, do not be deceived. And then he talks about adulterers and idolaters and fornicators, homosexuals, thieves, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's something else I told my wife is every one of these passages where Paul says, do not be deceived, Many of these people in the world are deceived and many people that claim to be Christians are deceived on those same issues. But praise God, he says, such were some of you. And that's what leads us to have that compassion because we remember who we once were and how would we want people to talk to us and treat us when we were in the world, when we weren't following Christ. 
We'd want people to be patient with us, kind to us, gentle with us, but we'd want them to tell us the truth. So may we be like Paul, where he says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Are we ashamed? If we're not preaching the whole counsel of God, like many preachers in this world, and if you turn on the TV, why aren't they preaching the whole counsel of God? Because they're ashamed. And how many organizations, how many Christian churches, how many pastors have pressured to the culture and are now corrupting the word of God. We need to hold fast. As this world grows darker and darker, we need to shine brighter and brighter. So, Jesus also said in Luke 6, 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. He goes on to say in verse 35, but love your enemies. Do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. It's really hard to love your enemies, isn't it? It's really hard to love those who scorn you and mock you. Yet Paul gives us a great example here. Even though many in the Corinthian church were Christians, some weren't and many were denying that he was even, he was even an apostle and yet he continues to pour his life into them. Take a look at verse 4, 2 Corinthians 3, 4. It says, In such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Paul was confident. He was confident in who he was as an apostle. He was confident that he was doing the Lord's work. He was confident that he was a fragrant aroma, a sweet-smelling offering to the Lord. Even though people didn't believe the message, he was confident. And so in verses one through four, he's pleading with the Corinthians. He's reinforcing this notion that they are the letter written in Paul's heart, known and read by all men. And Paul, throughout, throughout this entire letter in 2 Corinthians, Paul has this defensive undertone. It's, it's one of the least doctrinal books in the New Testament, at least one of the least doctrinal books that the Apostle Paul wrote. He's basically, for 13 chapters, pouring his heart out to the church, pleading with the Corinthian church. I want to share a little bit from 2 Corinthians 12, as you see his heart, a little bit of defensiveness, and then he brings in the love. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11. He says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent, eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. They say elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive, his speech contemptible. They were sizing him up, to the other teachers who had great rhetoric, great eloquence, really good speakers. They could keep the crowd's attention for a long time. And they're saying, you don't add up to that. You weren't schooled in that same rhetoric and Greek philosophy as them, so therefore we don't think you're an apostle. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, I'm not inferior to the greatest of them, not in one bit. Why? 
verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. He's like, didn't you see the miracles? Some of you are healed. Perhaps some of them are walking who weren't walking before because Paul came in and healed them. And nevertheless, they're so clouded and so blinded as to say, yeah, we really still don't believe you're an apostle. Crazy what Satan can do when he gets into the church. Verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 12, he says, For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. You see a little bit of sarcasm throughout this letter, as you see there. Forgive me of this. I didn't become a burden to any of you. I took up a part-time job so that you guys would not even say that I'm doing this for the money. I labored among you. I poured my life into you. I healed you. And now I'm like a nursing mother, as he says in this letter and other letters. I'm like a nursing mother just trying to see that you would grow up in maturity in the Lord. It's just such a great model for us as believers to have patience. Patience with our kids, patience with our loved ones, patience with everyone. Paul actually, actually tells Timothy to pursue patience and godliness and gentleness and kindness. And I often mention this, but I feel like as men, we say, well, those are like womenly attributes, like kindness and gentleness. Like I'm more rugged and tough. And I, I like the Jesus that flips over tables and, you know, that kind of Jesus. Not that kind Jesus, the gentle Jesus. And I see this online when I used to go on Twitter and I'll see these Christians arguing back and forth and it's like they're lobbing these hand grenades at one another. And I'm like, where's the gentleness? Where's the kindness? These are fruits of the Holy Spirit. You guys are Christians. And many times they'll couch it in the verse of contending earnestly for the faith. And so there's tensions in the scripture to to where, yes, we contend earnestly in the faith, but we do it with gentleness and respect. And so at, around that time when I was on Twitter and seeing those Twitter wars all the time, I memorized 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, where it says, the Lord's bondservant is not quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient with when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those in opposition, if perhaps they may come to repentance and escape from the snare of the devil, Having been, had, having been held captive by him to do his work. So he says, be patient with all men. Be kind to those people. Be gentle with your opponents so that they will turn. And so that's something that I believe we all need to grow in. And perhaps you're doing a good job at it, but just another reminder to be kind and gentle in the Lord. And I think Paul was really wrestling with that in these letters that he was writing because he just wanted to go off, I'm sure, and just say all sorts of things. And so at times he catches himself, like here in 2 Corinthians 12, where he gets a little sarcastic, but then he says in verses 14 and 15, here for this third time I'm ready to come to you. I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls if I love you the more Am I to be loved less? This passionate plea for the church. I love Paul's heart. I love his transparency. I try to be transparent 
as well. When I teach, when I counsel, when I encourage, sometimes we can go too far. We can open up too much. But I feel like I'd rather err on that side than just close up and not share my life at all. And I think Paul's a great example of that in this letter. He's real, he's open, he's honest with the church. So, let's look at these last two verses, verses five and six. Second Corinthians three, five and six. Paul says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. So the verse before, yeah, we're confident. Yeah, we know who we are in Christ. Yeah, we know we're preaching a true gospel. Yeah, I know I'm an apostle. I know Jesus sent me. But let me balance things out in verse five and say, not that we're adequate in and of ourselves. To consider anything as coming from ourselves, our adequacy is from God. Our sufficiency, our worth, our ability to do anything in the ministry is all from God. Verse six, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The Old Testament can't save anyone. The law can't save anyone. It says in Galatians, if the law could save, then Jesus died needlessly. If anything or any other way could save than Jesus, then he died for no purpose. There's only one way to salvation, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection of the perfect son of God. And that's the gospel that we need to proclaim. That's the gospel Paul proclaimed. That's the gospel the apostles proclaimed. That's the gospel the early church proclaimed. And that's the gospel every true Christian proclaims, is that there's no other name under heaven among which we must be saved than through Jesus Christ. So if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, turn to him and live. If you're listening on podcasts, YouTube, whatever, today is the day of salvation. Before it's too late, Turn to Jesus Christ. So who is adequate? Nobody. In and of yourselves, in and of myself, Paul, Timothy, Silas, any of the apostles, no one is adequate. Not Jeremiah who was too young, not Moses who couldn't speak, not Gideon who doubted, not Paul who felt inadequate. Here's the point. Their adequacy comes from God. Your adequacy, my adequacy, our sufficiency is found in Christ. And the moment we think that we can do anything in our own strength is the moment that we fall flat on our face. We need to constantly remind ourselves that apart from Jesus Christ, I can do nothing. Abide in him and you will bear much fruit. So in closing, gonna get out a little early tonight. Do you feel inadequate to raise children in today's culture? I know I do at times. Do you feel inadequate at times to share the gospel? Do you feel inadequate to lead a small group maybe? Do you feel inadequate to disciple or counsel other brothers and sisters in the Lord? Or what has God put in front of you that you might feel inadequate in? That God's calling you to rely on him and say yes, but my adequacy comes from the Lord. If God can use Jeremiah, if God could use Moses, if God could use Gideon, if, Paul, if God could use Paul, and God can use the runt of the litter throughout all the centuries of church history, then he can use you, he can use me. He's just calling us to be faithful. So, my encouragement to you tonight is to plead with the Lord. Say, Lord, use me. I wanna be like an apostle Paul. I wanna be a humble servant. 
I want to be able to pour into people that don't love me in return. I want to be patient with them. I want to be kind with them. And I want to keep Jesus Christ and his gospel at the forefront of my life. So, in closing, let God fight your battles. Don't fight your own battles. I was reading Joshua the other night, and Joshua's farewell address to the people before he dies, he says, don't forget that God fought your battles. Remember, remember Jericho? Remember you guys marched around and the walls came tumbling down? And remember all these foreign armies that we defeated? Never forget that it was God who fought those battles, not you. And I think as Christians, we can become complacent. We can look back at our lives or see how far we've come or see all the things that maybe we possess and go, look what I have. Maybe we won't actually say those words, but it's like that little bit of pride can creep in. Let's never forget that it's God, his power, his strength, his might, his working in us. And apart from him, we can do nothing. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you.